Hi, welcome to another podcast. I'm Lorna Slater, co-leader of the Scottish Green Party. And my name's Max Hall. I'm the general election candidate for Dunfermline and West Fife, and I'm also co-convener of the Scottish Green Party Council. Let's talk about that a little Mm -hmm. bit. So the Green Party, Scottish Green Party, used to have our two sort of main leadership roles were called Mm co-conveners and people are very kind when they meet me (laughs) they often refer to me as co-convener because uh, that was previously the Mm -hmm. role and I'm (laughs) co-leader I'm co-leader of the Scottish uh, Green Party with Patrick Harvey Mm -hmm. and you are co-convener of council so the previous co-conveners, when uh, our two previous co-conveners of the party were technically also co-conveners of council, but the way the party was structured before was that council was responsible for absolutely everything. Therefore, the co-conveners of council were the default party leaders. You know, they 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 chaired our council meetings, they oversaw all the operations of the party, and they were the public-facing spokespeople as well. So um, it's become increasingly clear in recent years that that wasn't a viable role anymore. You know, people, none of our, you know, people in that position, nobody really humanly could do all those jobs. And you wouldn't want the same person to do all those jobs as well, because, you know, doing the operational side of things, supporting branch development, supporting the growth of the party, and also being the public face of the party are very different skills. So... Uh, following the structural review that we had and the uh, new constitution that the party brought in in spring this year, we divided that out into, it's basically, well, well there's three different roles, but all of them are co-roles. So we have um, at least one female representative in each of those roles. There's co-conveners of council, there's co-chairs of the national executive, and then there's the co-leader role that you and Patrick are, are doing at the moment. And all these roles are volunteer roles. All mm-hmm. of us do these in addition to our day jobs and our yeah. responsibilities and our yeah. <laughs> loading and our uh, yeah. hanging up our laundry and all the other things that we all have to do. Yeah. So it certainly wasn't viable as the party grew. Mm-hmm. We're an organisation of nearly 7,000 people mm-hmm. and it wasn't viable to be a convener of an organisation that large Mm-hmm. as well as spokesperson, as well as those other things. So the new party structure, we changed those roles that we broke them into much more mm-hmm. hopefully manageable pieces for volunteers to take mm-hmm. on. Um, and this will hopefully allow us to continue to grow as a party because we had yeah. massive growth after 2014, what we called the surge, the green, mm-hmm. big green surge. Mm-hmm. And I think what we're finding in a lot of cases now is that the surge members, and I was a surge member, mm-hmm. Are sort of have worked their way into this party structure, and I think several of our national committees are now led by surgers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that's an exciting kind of new blood in the yeah, party, new, yeah. new energy. It is, and it's kind of I feel anyway um, that dividing the roles up has given much more clarity, not just to the individuals and the leadership roles, but to the bodies themselves. So as council now, so council is the body that represents the grassroots membership, and council is made up of representatives from all our branches as well as our representative groups, so our Women's Network, our Disabled Greens, our Rainbow Greens. Um, And it's there to be the overarching strategic guiding body for the party to make sure that our strategy and our aims and our ambitions as a party is still led by the grassroots. But it's also there to support that grassroots and to nurture them, so to make sure that branches... Um, have the resources that they need to make sure they're getting the support that they're needed to make sure that branches are being asked 
what they're being asked to do is is a reasonable thing and isn't isn't beyond their their capabilities as well. Um, so that's what we're really now able to focus on. The executive, led by our executive uh, co-chairs, is dealing with all the operational side of things. So the the day to day management of the party, our staffing, the delivery of our strategy. Once council set the strategy, the executive makes sure that that gets gets delivered. So it's really divided those those roles out a bit. Um, we've only had since bringing the new structure in. We've just had the one meeting of council. Council meets four times a year. So we had our meeting in September, which we got really positive feedback on. It was a shorter meeting. It was a different structure. It was a different style. We got good feedback so far. Our next one's in December. Um, and yeah, we're really open to hearing from branches and hearing from members about what they need council to be so that it can be a useful forum for, for people going forward and to make sure, as I say, that the members in the grassroots are still at the core of what, what the party's doing. And I think that's so important for how we organise ourselves. It's something we get frustrated about when people in uh, on Twitter and in the media sort of say, why don't Lorna, and ha- Lorna mm-hmm. Slater and Patrick Harvey make the Greens do yeah. X? And it's like, well, that's not how mm-hmm. it works. Me and Patrick work for the mm-hmm. party. Yeah. Mags is, in theory, in a much more powerful position in the party <laughs> by chairing ca- or convening council, which is the grassroots mm-hmm. member-led party strategy and decision-making body. Mm-hmm. The way it works is that council tell Patrick and me what to do, Mm -hmm. not the other way around. So Mm -hmm. as spokespeople for the party, that's Patrick's and my job is to do our best to represent the views and values of the Green Party to the to the wider world Mm -hmm. in the media. Although during an election, all candidates also become spokespeople. Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah, so I'm an election candidate as well, which has been pretty exciting. It's the first time I've stood in a general election. I've stood, I was a candidate at the European elections earlier this year, and I've stood at council elections. Um, but yeah, it's interesting to be doing a general election in my home constituency, which I'm very proud to, to represent and to talk about local issues. Um, a lot of it so far has been about trying to get people excited about the election, <laughs> make people aware that this election's happening. There's a lot of political apathy around about my area in Dunfermline and West Fife, a lot of people who are doing all right for themselves, you know, they're just ticking over nicely and not not too concerned. So that's that's been a big focus of the of the campaign so far. Now your particular expertise is in food and farming, mm-hmm. which is interesting to me because I, I always joke that I'm a city mouse. I grew <laughs> up in a big city. I live in the centre of Edinburgh. Like if you threw a dart at Edinburgh <laughs> and hit you probably hit my flat. Yeah. If you hit the middle. So I I don't know much about food and farming <laughs> at all. And I know our colleague Carolyn's Grimgior made a wonderful speech at a hustings mm-hmm. this week and she was talking about the climate emergency and about how tackling the climate emergency means we need to change how we get our food. Mm-hmm. What does that actually mean? Okay, it's a big question. So the first thing to be aware of is that um, you know, uh, agriculture and food production is a huge contributor to, to global warming. Um, it's the, In Scotland, it's the second biggest sector. When we, we, we produce, um, under the Climate Change Bill, Scot- the Scottish Government produces a report every year showing our emissions and showing it quite clearly. And for consistently several years in a row now, agriculture's been the second biggest emitter um, after transport. Um, so, so it's huge. It is quite a complex subject, though, because it's it's not quite... Emissions from agriculture aren't the same as emissions from uh, the fossil fuel industry. Um, the fossil fuel industry is, is digging up ancient energy. You know, it's ancient carbon that's been stored underground for millennia, digging that up and burning it and releasing it into the atmosphere, which is an absolutely massive uh, shift and a massive um, knock to our ecosystem. 
the emissions that we get um, from agriculture, there's a small proportion of it that is, is fossil fuels emissions. So there's fossil fuels that we use in our farms, there's tractors going around, and um, there's fossil fuels that we use in the production of fertilisers, we use fossil fuels in the transportation of our food and the refrigeration of our food. So a chunk of it is... Uh, emissions from from fossil fuels and we need to tackle them in the same way that we tackle other emissions by reducing it and coming up with alternatives to fossil fuels but the other big chunk of emissions which you hear about a lot from from uh, food and climate change activists is um the emissions from from both animal agriculture and arable agriculture um, and these are emissions caused by biological processes in rearing animals um, in digging up our soil and, and in growing food and these are emissions that are produced naturally the problem that we have at the moment is that we're producing food on such an intense industrial scale that these emissions are building up in the atmosphere quicker than we can sequester them. So in an ideal, in a sort of traditional sustainable farming system, um, cows and goats and sheep produce um, they produce methane from their natural biological processes. Um, methane is, uh, I think it's four times stronger than CO2. It has Methane has a really, really significant greenhouse gas impact, but it also dissipates quicker in the atmosphere. So there's a balancing act there in terms of, in, a, in the short term, it has a bigger impact, but in the longer term, it, it emits, um, it, it, it dissipates quicker. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so in a natural farming system, Animals still produce that methane, but they produce it at a rate that the atmosphere can cope with it. And in the meantime, animals are living in grasslands and they're living in forests. And these are sequestering carbon from the atmosphere. And that's having a balancing impact with the with the impact that the animals are having on the environment. Um, the problem that we have is that we've developed a farming system where we pack a huge number of animals into small spaces. We feed them on um, supplements. We feed them on soy. We feed them on barley and corn and grains that we that that um, we've grown specifically for that purpose. Um, we we dig up grasslands, natural grasslands, in order to plant crops, crops for animals to eat, crops for humans to eat as well. Digging up soil in turn releases carbon into the atmosphere. Um, we create industrial uh, fertilizers, which we then put onto our soil, which then strips the soil of its own ability to 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 fertilize itself. You know, it's a whole the food system, uh, the industrial food system as it stands at the moment is an absolute ticking time bomb of. Um, imbalance and of industrial processes that eventually are going to completely destroy our natural ecosystem's ability to, to feed itself. So that's quite a big complicated argument, a bit explanation I've given you there. Basically, it's very complicated and it's very damaging and we have to rethink fundamentally all the ways that we, that we grow food. But there's not one simple answer to it. And a lot of, um, you know, climate activists who've been working for a long time in food and sustainable food often butt heads um, with uh, some more extreme activists, particularly those who want to end animal agriculture or think a fully plant-based diet is the answer. Um, because it's quite, saying we need to stop farming animals is a really simplistic response and it's it's not viable in a lot of places. Um, it wouldn't automatically give you the the response that you're looking for um and also it's as i say uh, my focus and and sort of uh, uh sustainable people coming up from a sustainable agriculture's point of view is we don't need another techno fix 
to a big mess of techno fixes on top of you know we've tried to feed the world by techno fix on top of techno fix on top of techno fix which has got us in this mess in the first place but we are the solution is to look back at the natural systems and um, the agroecological systems we call them that have fed us for millennia and mimic those, figure out how we can mimic those on a large scale, but a scale that's restoring that equilibrium um, and, and restoring the ecosystem's ability to, to, to balance itself out. That's where the solution lies, not in simple things like let's end all animal agriculture or let's move to vertical farming straight away or you know various different radical solutions that have been proposed. So what does sustainable agriculture look like to you? I mean, to what what would... If, if we, I don't even know what yeah. right word is. If I was to walk onto yeah. a piece of land that yeah. was you being used for sustainable agriculture, what yeah. would I see? Really, really a di diverse landscape. Diverse landscape, diverse range of animals living there. You know, it, it is really about diversity and moving away from the one-size-fits-all big agri-tech solutions that have been proposed to us so as you know it, it's it's a complicated subject because ecosystems are really complicated things and when you start to mess around and and and, uh, and, and balance them so much um you know that's that's where the problem lies so thinking about it, the other thing is it looks very different in different countries so there is no there is no global solution for sustainable agriculture. There is a whole network of local solutions to sustainable agriculture, and they vary depending on what your topography is, depending on how much rainfall you get, depending on your, your temperature and your climate. Um, so for Scotland, um, only so 80% of Scotland is only suitable for grazing animals on. So we cannot um, we cannot say let's stop farming animals and use that land to grow protein crops or to grow fruit and vegetables instead because our soil simply isn't fertile enough. We have a very small amount of soil that's fertile enough for growing fruit and vegetables on, um, or for grain crops or for arable. So the first thing is you do is you use that good land to grow your fruit and vegetables and to grow your arable. In Scotland, we hear a lot, you hear a lot about um, land being wasted, um, you know, land being used to grow feed for animals and that that's a waste of our resources. In Scotland, actually, the biggest waste of our resources we have is actually the whiskey industry. So a huge proportion of our most fertile land, particularly in the northeast of Scotland, grows barley. But it doesn't grow barley for human or animal feed, it grows barley to malt for the whiskey industry, um, which, you know, brings in a lot to the Scottish economy, but it doesn't help feed us. It's not meeting our our food needs. Um, so you need to really value that good quality land, decide what, what you're going to do with it. And from our point of view as Greens, that needs to be prioritised for healthy, affordable food that people are going to actually eat. Really good quality fruit and vegetables grown in an organic way, um, uh, grown in... Um, grown for local markets so that people can access it easily. The rest of the land, it's about looking at how best you can use that sometimes to produce food on, but also other ways that you can use that land as well. Um, people talk a lot about rewilding and we do support rewilding. We passed a motion at our conference this year to, to support rewilding, but sustainable land use isn't just about letting it go back to the wild. It's also about you know using it for, for planting trees on in a, in a managed way to support biofuels. And um, it's also about combining animals and trees. It's a process called agroforestry or silvopasture where you can put these two things on together. Um, Animals have a really, really important role to play in restoring land that's been degraded over time. So by the very act of 
grazing, so cows and sheep and goats as grazing animals, um, they, they play a really important role in going in and, and eating the grass, pooing on the grass, fertilising the grass, um, but also bringing in other, you know, it's all about ecosystems. It's about uh, in, not just introducing cows and sheep, but introducing the other animals that live there, introducing the, the, um, the bacteria back into the soil that then helps grow healthy grassland systems that then helps lock carbon down into the soil. You know, it's about combining all these things on the one bit of land. So, the you know, upland farming in Scotland, if you go out onto a sheep farm, you'll just see huge swathes of empty bare hills with a few sheep on it, which are very, you know, it's unfertile soils. It's it's meat that we don't even eat in Scotland. Like so much of our farmland is given over to, to lamb that then the farmers can't sell because they're only getting 30, we get like 35 pounds a sheep at the moment for a carcass. So it's economically unsustainable. Um, you know, there's so much more potential in our, in our land but it starts with breaking it down into smaller farm units looking at what we can do with that land and combining lots of different activities and processes on it so scotland's soils i as i understand mm. are a lot in a lot of ways heavily depleted mm -hmm. and that's partly you'll set me right if i'm wrong on this because their trees a lot of it was heavily mm. forested historically yeah. like in the yeah. middle ages and so on yeah yeah and when the trees go sort of the top soils and then so this has this this vicious cycle effect yeah. that not only because healthy soils are good yeah. carbon stores uh -huh. carbon sinks so we've damaged our soils so they don't absorb carbon we've mm -hmm. damaged them so much you can't grow anything on them mm -hmm. you know the trees are gone mm -hmm. you can't even grow sheep on a lot of them yeah yeah and then of course the other wasted land or what i think of as the most wasted land is all the land that's reserved for shooting estates yes so what's so frustrating to me as a green about this mm -hmm. is that a lot of that land has been classified as agricultural land mm -hmm. even though it's only used by a few rich people to murder yeah. you know angry birds a few every few times a year they get huge eu subsidies for that they're not providing mm -hmm. our food mm -hmm. so where how does that all fit into the picture how do we make yeah. our soils how do we reclaim that land yeah. and make our soils healthy again yeah absolutely so so a fifth of the uplands in scotland are uh shooting estates they're upland growth a fifth. a fifth yes massive. absolutely huge it totally is so like if you're talking about rewilding that's where you start because they're essentially you know uh, Grouse moors are even worse, they're even more ecologically barren than upland sheep farming because at least sheep farming you've got some sheep on it, there's, a, there's an element of grazing going on there, there's an element of biodiversity. Um, upland grouse moors are managed in a way that's specifically about limiting the biodiversity of these areas so that you can release a few birds a year out onto the land and let people go and, and, and shoot them. So they actively get rid of um, they actively get rid of animals like, um, like mountain hares, beautiful protected animals like mountain hares because they spread diseases that uh, potentially kill the the grouse which is what you know they're going out to shoot um you know they they burn heather because the heather contains um ticks and parasites and things that again damage damage these grouse um it's just it is an absolute insane way to manage a huge valuable resource you know it's a cultural resource it's an environmental resource it's it's it makes me really angry <laughs> like i find it well, really I difficult think yeah tough. and for, for such a i mean yeah. i as i say i'm i'm a i like to think of myself as a sort of normal person i'm not yeah. a posh person. <laughs> i'm not a posh person is what yeah. I, yeah, I didn't yeah. grow up thinking shooting animals for fun yeah. was normal and i think maybe if you grow up in the countryside i don't know i, mean, I don't know if this is a country city so i grew up in yeah. a city you're right i'm used to getting my food in a packet from yeah. the shop i will confess that i don't know much about sort of farm to plate stuff mm -hmm. 
that's not been part of my life. But the idea of shooting animals for fun yeah. seems so yeah. bizarre. Like it's different, I think, if you're being part of the food chain and eat, eating an animal, yeah. which many people choose to do. A lot of people these yeah. days are opting out from doing that. But you know, it, it is something that people choose to do. And but shooting animals for fun? Yeah, I mean it's it's a cultural thing. So if you talk to people who go go out shooting, and there is again, there's, there's a difference between um, you know I I know people who who go out and shoot in a deer management way. So there's, there are different types of hunting, um, and you know deer is a slightly different thing in that our ecosystem is so out of whack in Scotland that we have these animals that if if you don't cull deer, they do. Um, they end up overpopulated in an area. You end up with deer starving and things like that. So that's a slight. So, so that's well, a slightly different no thing. Because there's no predators, isn't it? Because there's no predators, exactly. So we yeah. need to reintroduce but, like wolves and bobcats. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we can do absolutely. But the but the grouse moor thing. That's a specific um, hunting practice where it's completely introduced. You know these uh, these animals. Well, actually, no. Sorry, I, I take that. But grouse aren't introduced. Grouse are a wild animal in Scotland. Pheasants are introduced. You get pheasants and you oh, get guinea fowl that. and things like that. Yeah. So pheasants are basically farmed. That's one of the things that we been looking at in the Scottish Parliament is um, trying to reclassify pheasants as farmed animals because um, pheasants are basically reared um, in on estates you know they're reared in like hatcheries and then they're released and then people go and shoot them it's so easy to shoot a pheasant like it's, it's like the absolute entry they're level they shooting kind of they're totally them. daft but the thing is they're still classed as wild animals and because they're classed as wild animals it means you can go and shoot them if you reclassify them as a farmed animal, you cannot shoot a farmed animal. There's a, there's rules and regulations around making sure that you basically have to take a farmed animal to an abattoir to, to make sure it's killed in a proper way. Okay. So if you reclassify pheasants as farmed animals, that's the industry gone. You can't do shooting parties anymore. Grouse is a bit different. Grouse are wild animals, but they maintain the grouse moors in a way that's absolutely optimal for them. And you can imagine, grouse are pretty small birds. They're quite delicate they do have a lot of natural predators and things so there's a lot of intervention goes on in order to make an environment where grouse thrive in so that you can then go and shoot them um, so there's a huge amount of raptor persecution goes on in these estates and we know it and it's not being pursued and it's not being challenged at the moment but because because you know eagles golden eagles white-tailed eagles and the like go and eat, eat grouse and, and will capture mature grouse as well as young grouse or whatever there's um estate managers going out at the moment have to be careful what I say. Yeah, <laughs> no, there are there are there are, there are dead eagles. There's a lot up. of dead eagles. Near a lot states. of dead eagles. Exactly. We, we can't accuse any particular person, yeah. but there's a lot of dead eagles showing up near shooting estates. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So so yeah. So you ask about what we can do about that. I mean, yeah. First of all, you you stop. There were changes in 2014 in this latest phase of the Common Agricultural Policy around the amount of money that that these could claim, but we could have gone a lot further. Basically, the, the Scottish government and the UK government decided to not introduce voluntary measures which could have really limited that but yeah if you declassify shooting estates um, as agricultural land and you make them uh, less um, ma make sure that they cannot claim any kind of like agricultural or rural support subsidies in general then it, it makes them less viable um, but there's a real lack of imagination as well uh, in general across the farming and the upland sector there's a lack of imagination and there's a lack of really good examples about what you can do with this land about the alternatives there's been some really good papers produced and some good you know the revive coalition have done some good kind of visioning projects around what upland scotland could look like combining sustainable food production with housing and forestry and the likes but it's on paper at the moment mm -hmm. what we really need are some 
visionaries and some sort of local leaders to step forward and to say, I'm going to do this with my land. I'm going to, we're going to really change the way that we use our land. We're going to change the way that we produce food um, and we're going to become an example to the rest of Scotland. It's happening on a small scale. There's some really fantastic farm uh, farmers uh, in various places around Scotland at the moment, wonderful crofters and, and the Western Isles and the Northern Isles, um, good examples in Cairngorms National Parks and the like of people doing this on a quite a small scale. And they're starting to get together um, there's a, a new organisation called the Nature Friendly Farming Network, which is, is doing great work to try and promote that. Um, and there is a shift politically in that and people are more interested in that now. But nobody yet has kind of done it on a big scale for these big estates, these big traditional hunting estates to say this is what they could look like. So that would be a real game changer if somebody could do that. That's brilliant. That would be really interesting. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So, so you've got your first hustings tomorrow for this election i do yeah uh good <laughs> so there's no we don't have any local hustings in dunfermline if anyone in dunfermline's listened to this and wants to organize hustings before the 12th of december that would be fantastic so i'm going through to glasgow i'm doing the wwf climate emergency hustings at the scottish power headquarters and it's going to be live streamed on the herald website i do believe so it's quite high profile looking forward to it um debating it with four middle-aged white men about the climate emergency so i'm going to try and He's talk about manal. well done for being yeah yes we're, we're not doing a manal, but yeah trying to talk to people about the importance of diverse voices in the climate debate um and but there are some young people there as well they've got some young people in the audience so i'm looking forward to speaking to them and giving them the floor at some point as well so it's looking nice. forward to that brilliant well i hope that goes well and thanks for speaking with me today yeah i hope that was useful if anyone's got questions about food and farming policy please do get in touch because that was quite a <laughs> bit of a ramble chat about it but yeah i'm always always happy to talk to, to members and stuff about about this so